Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Addict Headquarters. We have a great show for you today, folks, because we're expecting Daniel Rosenberg to be here to talk about his experience as a producer for such important movies as Inside Man, Righteous Kill, and Novocaine. Just listen to this background information. Besides serving as executive producer for Inside Man, Daniel also helped develop the screenplay and this unusual New York heist movie, which starred Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, Jodie Foster, Christopher Plummer, earned the AFI's Top Ten Film Award of 2006 and was the third highest grossing R-rated movie of the year in 19... Uh, not 19, we're in the, we're in the <laughs> other century, in 2008... The film Righteous Kill paired legendary actors Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in a suspenseful cop buddies versus serial killers crime drama. And prior to those films, Rosenberg produced Novocaine, a crime-slash-mystery-slash-comedy starring Steve Martin as a dentist whose life unravels after being involved with a sexy drug addict portrayed by Helena Bonham Carter. Daniel's film credits also include Made in Manhattan and Mona Lisa Smile. He is the co-author of Closing the Deal, and his company, InVenture Entertainment, develops and produces a slate of feature movies and television series. As you can see, folks, we're very excited to have Daniel Rosenberg as our guest, and I believe he is with us now. So it's my great pleasure to bring him on and introduce him to you. Welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, Daniel. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so happy that you could be with us, and we were planning on having um, filmmaker Misha Zubarev as a, a co-host, and I know that uh, that you know Misha, and he's, he was so excited to, to be here to talk with you, but there was a schedule conflict, and so I don't think he's, he's going to be with us, but uh, if he does call in during the show, we'll, we'll put him on, and I'm sure he has, uh, has some questions for you. Understandable. Um, I also... Yeah, well, you know how in your business, I mean, you you get, you definitely get these assignments last uh, minutes, or you get sure. assignments last minute. But I also wanted to mention that our uh, chat room is open, and uh, so I um, encourage any listeners uh, to, who are interested to sign in. I see that our um, producer extraordinaire, Nikki Starr, is in the chat room, and we have... Uh, a few guests that have already signed in. They haven't identified themselves, but we also have Steve Mendoza from the Steve Mendoza Show, which is a very, very funny show here on Blog Talk Radio. So we'd like to 
uh, to welcome Steve and the other guests, and I'm sure there will be others uh, that will be joining us a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, we really do appreciate the listeners who sign up for the chat as well as all our other uh, listeners. Well, we've got lots of questions for you, Daniel, and I think we probably should start out with a, with a simple one, but I've been very, very curious about this. What motivated you to get involved with uh, filmmaking? Uh, well, uh, I I graduated from undergraduate business school, and I when I grew up, my father, who's an attorney, had a lot of clients who were tangentially in the business um, or actually in the business. Uh, back in the 1980s, there was something called the investment tax credit, and it, it made it very easy for doctors and lawyers to invest in the film business uh, oh. because they got to write it off almost immediately. And I, you know, hey. my father made a living defending a lot of movie executives in tax court, and I got a sense of the business growing up. So when I graduated school, I went uh, actually straight into the mailroom at ICM, which at the time was one of the biggest, uh, or and still is one of the bigger town and literary agencies in Hollywood. And uh, I delivered mail for the first four months and got lucky when a woman by the name of Elaine Goldsmith, now Elaine Goldsmith uh, Thomas, moved to New York oh. because she was one of the biggest agents uh, in Hollywood. She, At the time, her clients were Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon, oh. Tim Robbins, Jennifer Lopez, Madonna. So uh, she plucked me out of the mailroom to be her assistant. And oh, my that was, gosh. <laughs> that was that sort of great. Yeah. Yeah, so that was my first sort of uh, real job uh, after the mailroom, and uh, and incidentally, um, I met my wife the first day of work at ICM. You so, did? Yeah, and she's a. Well, it must she, have been fate. It it was it was fate. So uh, so I worked for Elaine for about two years, um, and all her clients, and got to learn the business. So I was literally thrown into the trenches. And, uh, you know, was very lucky to have experienced that level of the business so quickly. I mean, I was I was her assistant. I was 20, I was 21. So, um, I mean, what did I know, really? Uh, and what do I know now? So, uh, a lot. So, yeah, so, uh, so that was my first real job and experience and learned quite a bit in how the business worked, how information flows through agencies. And then um, in ninety in the ninety seven I left and started my own started Inventure Entertainment. And at Inventure, my first project, the first script I left ICM with was uh, was Novocaine, and it took me uh, about two years to put that together. I am so glad that you did because <laughs> that movie. I mean, it just it just held held me uh, almost spellbound from beginning to end, and it wasn't what I was expecting at all because I I had seen Steve Martin play a dentist <laughs> before, <laughs> but that was a little shop of horrors. Do you remember that? His no, sure leather do. jacket and all that. And I mean, he was just hilarious in that. And uh, so I wasn't expecting that in Novocaine, but that that and I didn't know what genre to put this in. I mean, what did did you have? Did you and the others that worked on that film? Did you have a particular genre that you thought it it would fit into, or did you, you didn't care? Uh, you know, that script was written by uh, David Atkins, and he, you know, he's a, just a fantastic uh, 
quirky writer. And the deal was that I made with him was that I get to, if if I get him to direct the movie, I get to produce it. So um, many times during the during the process of putting it together, we were told, uh, you know, you'd have a much easier time putting this movie together if you uh, had didn't have a first time director. And uh, you know, you as a producer, when you know your director, your writer uh, is your director, and he controls the script, uh, it. it you don't really have a choice. So we, um, you know, we, we went out to Steve Martin and uh, the director, David, sat down with him. And at that point, it's really just about convincing Steve that this is the right career move. And he wanted to do something quirky. He had a great experience on uh, Spanish Prisoner. And he wanted to do something small and quirky again. And uh, for him, he also wanted to work with Helena Bottom Carter. And, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So that so it's really about getting Helena to sign on as well for him. And once, uh, although he did sign on, if I recall, it's been a while, but if I recall, he did sign on, but had his list of actresses that he was interested in working with. And um, and then Laura Dern, who just does not have a bad take. I mean, she just is one of the most brilliant professional actors I've ever worked with, um, and she's just incredibly talented. I agree. And in this movie. She was just brilliant. This oh, she that prim and proper, and the white surgical coat, and she mm-hmm. as a dentist assistant, she was just Miss Perfect, and she just fit the role just just perfectly. And I agree. She's been so so great in that um, HBO series that sure. she, she's been doing in Enlightenment. That or Enlightened, I believe, is the name of it. So she was great in that in that movie. Well, you no wonder you get all these great actors to to be in your in your movies. I mean, if you have an in with casting directors and all of that, Elias Codius in that movie. Yeah, he, he was he was a character. He was a lot of fun. I can't believe the way he comes across on screen now. Now in this in this he was he was just. Uh, a shady character, <laughs> and that's the way he he, he photographs that way. He, sometimes he it's reminds true. me of you know, uh, Humphrey one... Bogart. Yeah, in his early, I met Elias at the Telluride Film Festival one uh, uh... one year, and he is handsome in person. He's very polite and gentlemanly. And here you have him in uh, Novocaine. He looks, he's projecting kind of a lethal combination of irresponsibility, stupidity, and lack of morals. <laughs> and I believe and, everything. And you know what? He he had a lot of fun with it. I think that's one of the reasons why guys like him take roles like this. I think, you know, they get to do something they don't ordinarily get to do. You know, one of the fun things about the movie that uh, I don't think anyone really has spoken about is that in a script there was this really interesting dynamic um, from a height perspective. Susan Ivey, which is a character Helena Bottom Carter plays, her character was supposed to be uh, very, very short, and her brother, played by Scott Kahn, um, was supposed to be very, very short. And uh, there were there was a lot of um, nuance in the script between uh, height differentials, and one of the fun things we did was um, to make Helena Bottom Carter look smaller when we first meet her. Was that we actually built an oversized dentist chair, and uh, yeah, so in the first scene when you see her, 
that's actually an oversized chair to make her look a little smaller. Uh, and we did whatever we could, okay. but at the end of the day, um, it was sort of something that I think got lo lost from script to screen uh, simply in the casting process. Um, but there was like a scene that we had where in the very end of the movie at the height when the when the movie was at its, uh, you know, moving along at full pace t uh, towards the end, she's pulled over by a cop and the cop is supposed to be, you know, also diminutive and he is trying to figure out if he's taller than than Susan Ivy and he's more concerned with who's taller than what what she did wrong and uh it was I a very funny that. scene that oh, didn't make it to the movie. Oh, I remember that and and she was so so great in in this movie and I was surprised to see Kevin Bacon in that uh sort of a cameo or just it was a very very small role but he was just hilarious. Hilarious. As a self-centered actor. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, we, we, we shot it. We shot him out. I think in two days, and he was just uh, really great about it. And uh, he, um, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, and now, and now, I can say I'm one degree away from Kevin Bacon. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, well, that that movie. I mean, it just. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while. I think it came out in 2001. But, but I remember. I was just uh, so surprised at it, and. Uh, delighted and I thought it just had excellent performances in that and involving mystery and and the wonderful surprise ending but you seem to be uh, involved with movies that uh, have unusual endings and so I probably should ask some of these questions that Misha said he he wanted to ask you since he hasn't been able to to come on board but he's particularly concerned about the casting of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in Righteous Kill. Uh, what a coup to be able to get them to co-star in a, in a movie. And um, how did how did that happen? Uh, so it's I think it was 2008, and um, so this is after Inside Man. Uh, the same writer, Russell Gortz, and I had. Um, been working on putting Righteous Kill together, and we actually had various directors circling um, some amazing directors. David Ayer, who just uh, you know is one of the hottest directors in Hollywood right now. We were talking to him about directing it, um, and then uh, we were also speaking with Nick Raffin for a while, who couldn't also be a more hot director right now. Uh, and at the time, uh, John Avnet uh, actually we first got the financing together. And we made an offer to uh, Pacino first, and uh, Pacino really liked the script, and then we enlisted his help in getting De Niro to sign on. Oh. Uh, so that was sort of the order it happened. Uh, it was Pacino first, and oh. you know, although it, it, I mean, it, it sort of happened simultaneously because there was no, um, there was no real. Uh, sign. They, they 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 both were waiting for each other to sign on. Oh, they were they were terrific in in this movie, and it's they had been in movies before, but not uh, they didn't have much screen time. weren't they both in one of when Godfather Two? I, I think they were in Heat. They when, were in Heat together. And they were in uh, Heat, and that one I remember the scene of them talking together. But to have them in I a movie. I believe the history of that scene, I'm pretty certain, was that they actually were not shot at the same time. Oh. That that they were when they shot that scene, they were shot out. They were they were not actually in the same place at the same time. That's my recollection of that. 
it so was, this is it actually was the, great. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it, it, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think the movie um, was a was disappointing for me as a producer. Um, I think oh. the script was was a little bit was was better than the than the execution, um, and that's a hard thing mm-hmm. to say. And most producers yeah. don't often admit that, but um, I think that was sort of uh, something I had to come to terms with. That um, you know, I just didn't feel that uh, you know the, the script was was changed substantially um, in in pre production. Um, and, you know, after a while, I just sort of had to let it go a little bit, uh, because even though I put it together, it, that, you know, becomes the director's baby and, uh, you know, you have to sort of let it go to some degree. And, you know, I just, uh, I think the writer and I both felt that, um, the, the script we, we had originally put together was, was the, was the, a, a, a version we, we preferred. Wow. Well, speaking of the the script, I I think I heard somewhere that um, that uh, it's Russell. Is it? How do you pronounce his last name? Gortz. 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 Started with the ending, and of course, if you were working with him, had had an ending in, in mind, and then kind of worked worked backwards. Is that true? That uh, is it. Is it true that uh, he worked starts that that's the, the, the way ending? it was? Um, I mean, it started it, out within the script. You know, he knew how the movie was going was going to end and should end, and then well, he built the, the script up to that point. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, the answer to that is yes. That's actually how Russell uh, writes all of his movies. He comes up with the ending first, um, and Great. then he and you know that was sort of. I mean, I think Inside Man, and we can get to that later. But I think that is the is the best example of. Um, you know, a movie coming together from literally the first word all the way to the end. But Righteous Kill, uh, you know, that's Russ's process. We've we've since developed a couple of other films together, and uh, actually, he and I wrote a pilot for for uh, Fox Television last year. Um, and very often, you know, his process is figuring out what the what that great twist is and then extrapolating the uh the rest of the script from there. Well, I like that idea very much because it seems like I've seen so many movies where I just am I'm wondering if you know if the uh filmmakers know uh how they should end it. And, so, and then I think of Alan Dwan, that great uh, director, that's the way he uh, one of the early earliest <laughs> directors. Sure. And that's the way he always did his movies. He always had an ending in mind, and then he worked to that to that ending. So I think that's probably a very good process to you know, to go through. Well, I'm sorry to hear that that you were disappointed in the movie. I think um, that I did feel in the film that the best thing about it um, were the the performances of uh, Pacino and De Niro, and I did. Like the fact that there was a you know a twist, although I knew there was a twist coming, you know, right. kind of expected what it was. I do, I did, I did enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, and, listen, it's it's definitely still a very entertaining movie. Um, you know, I think you know after Inside Man, you know, you sort of want to, um, you know, you you want to really improve upon your storytelling, and and you know, look, Spike is uh, you know a fantastic director and you know i think with inside man i just felt like 
I was in such amazing hands, we, we all did, uh, in terms of taking uh, whatever was on that page and just bringing his vision to the table um, and some of his signature camera moves and certainly, you know, his relationship with the with the actors and his command of of um, of uh, you know of the camera. Oh, it was a very it was special. It really it really was a special a movie. And so this Inside Man did live up to your expect expectations. It oh, wasn't beyond. like you didn't feel the same way about it as you did Righteous Kill. Not at all. I mean, Inside Man, uh, I would do that all over again. In fact, we developed a sequel, and you know, I'm secretly hoping one day we actually get to shoot it. But uh, yeah, that was Inside Man was by far my my favorite experience making a movie, and I think it's one of those movies that's universally uh, praised by people. And uh, you know, it's it's I think generally audiences love a great twist, and I think this was one of those films uh, where people can watch it over and over again and see different things each time they watch it. And I think that's really a signature of Russell that, uh, you know, he, when as a writer, he is so uh, painstaking over every word. You know, some people write, they, they enjoy writing and then rewriting themselves. But with Russell, uh, each word is like giving birth. Um, he is, you know, it, it to write a page, um, he can sometimes spend a week on it if, you know, just to make sure every word feels right, which, you know, in Hollywood is, is not typically how writers write because they're used to executives coming in. And I was an executive once, so I know what this is like. They're used to executives coming in and rewriting and, uh, and giving notes on, on the material. And so you can't become too attached to it. And, and I think Russ's mm -hmm. process is that he's so careful with his words that he becomes very attached to them. And uh, so, you know, he, Russ does his best work when he can, you know, when he writes specs. And uh, and that's what, you know, Inside Man and Righteous Kill uh, were both written, you know, sort of outside the studio system. And he could take his time. And, you know, they were both done um, you know, speculatively. Well, uh, it's definitely a winner inside inside man and i usually don't like uh you know flashbacks and now and but the, in this case <laughs> inside man there were flash forwards <laughs> that i thought were done so well i i just i really you know it was it was something new for me to see the way this was this was uh put together and was that in the, in the script when you worked with uh, with yeah. Russell so, so basically, and and, and righteous kills there too. And in fact, a, a script that Russ is actually trying to put together right now. It's in his flashbacks are, are there as well. Um, you know, for for us, the, the use of the flashbacks are actually um, the the rules that we came up with. And I'm sure these rules exist elsewhere. But the rules sort of that we came up with that came to flashbacks were that we weren't allowed to give any new information to the audience, that we felt that was cheating, uh -huh. that, um, you know, we couldn't come up with a scene, show something new and give out new information that the reader felt felt we, we cheated them from something. We wanted to make sure that when we did the flashbacks, we were just showing the audience that everything was there for them if they paid attention and they could have figured this out. Um uh -huh. So that was sort of, uh, you know, for us more of a character flashback rather than a a sort of uh, third-person flashback. It was more of a first-person flashback. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's really where we landed, that we felt comfortable with it. I think, 
you know, if I recall, there were more flashbacks in there, and we we pared them down because, like you, Mary Jo, I think a, a, a lot of people, Betty Jo, I'm sorry, uh, a lot of people um, in in Hollywood automatically, anyone who went to film school thinks, uh, you know, using flashbacks is is uh, is a no no, and for the most part, you know, it is. But I think in, in certain instances when um, they're justified in a way that you know doesn't. Um, undermine, you know, great storytelling. I think they can be very effective, um, you, you know, in explaining to the audience um, what they, you know, may have missed in a different light or thought was a very insignificant detail coming more to light. I think uh, I agree with you on that. It's just sometimes they're they're so overused, and I think that's that's what I uh, object to. But in in this film, everything seemed to uh, fit together and. Where in the world did you come up with this wonderful theme for this uh, movie, the battle between cynicism and idealism that rages within us? Now, that's from John McCarthy's review that's on our Real Talk site. And what a great theme. How, how, did, you, how did that theme so, uh, so get So the Inside Man's story is uh, it's really one of my favorite stories because um, I think it's the most inspiring for, for new filmmakers who and for screenwriters who, uh, you know, don't understand how to get their material in front of people. Um, and, you know, look, I, I knew Russ. Russ and I met in New York. He was in law school. I was still in college. And uh, we became friendly. And I think we'd, we'd lost touch for a few years, and I ran into him at the Cannes Film Festival. I had just produced Novocaine, and he was there on personal business. And uh, we were on a, f- a friend of mine had won in an auction a week on a yacht and uh, in a, in Cannes. And so oh. we were all staying on this ridiculous yacht uh, that none of us were paying for. And um, we were on this back uh, in Cannes at the film festival on the back of this. 150 foot sailboat and drinking a glass of wine and Russ says to me I have an idea for a movie and at that point I said I'm late for a meeting I got to go good seeing you <laughs> and I started and I started to uh I started to walk off and he said no 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 just just uh just hear me out I said okay he said look the opening of the movie a guy is staring to the camera telling you he's committed the perfect crime except he's telling you this from the inside of a prison cell so you know he's lying to you I said okay go on. He said, at the end of the movie, you realize he wasn't lying to you. It's actually not a prison cell he was in. He's still in the bank. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I said, what's the rest of the movie? He's like, well, I haven't figured it out yet. So I was like, so uh, yeah, a little bit of the race left to run there, Ross. He's like, yeah. So he's like, well, can you help me? And I said, well, I guess I could help you, but do you know anything about writing screen screenplays? Not really. So he started sending me, uh, not to be deterred, he started, he sent me a page and of paragraphs. And I said, Russ, you know, screenplay is not paragraphs. He's like, well, what does a screenplay look like? So I <laughs> said, well, let me send you some screenplays. So I sent him some screenplays and uh, soon, soon, you know, he's a quick, he, Russ is a brilliant guy. Uh, soon, you know, paragraphs turned into, uh, you know, action and dialogue. And over a year, he would send me pages. I would rip them apart, send them back, redline them, mark them up. And after, I think it was a year, uh, and then I had taken a job as a studio executive, but a year into it, he sent me this script back and he said, are we finally done? And this is after, you know, at least 30 times of him telling me he was done and me telling him he wasn't. 
but I, at the time, I, I had the power to do that because he had absolutely no access to Hollywood. I was his, I was his lifeboat. Uh, so finally, I sent the script to all the major agencies in Hollywood. And um, actually, the truth is I sent it to one agent who shall remain nameless first. And the first response I ever got back from an agent uh, in Hollywood on Inside Man, the script, was, it's terrible. I don't see it. Uh, I, I think you're wasting your time. So now imagine you're working a year, you think it's really good, and then some 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 guy you trust tells you it's not very good and it's you know not going to sell. So Ouch. I sent it to I sent it to uh, three other agencies, and um, two of them, CAA and at the time Endeavor, came back and said, "Who is this guy, Daniel? We we've got to meet him." Please, um, you know, please have him come to L.A. He's living in New York. Please have him come to L.A. immediately. We want to sign him. And I said, well, why should he sign with you? And CAA said, well, I could tell you that right now Spielberg, Michael Mann, Ron Howard, and like four of the directors are reading Inside Man as we speak. Wow. So uh, within a week, we had sold the script, you know, to Ron Howard and – and Imagine, and that's how sort of Brian Grazer and Imagine came on board to to produce it with us. Well, what a what a story, and uh, that's kind of an, an inspiration to people who are trying to get their <laughs> movies made and their scripts looked at and um, and paid attention to to think that a script like Inside Man was originally turned down, but. And then the people that you got in the uh, cast in this movie, Denzel Washington and Clive Owen and Christopher Plummer and, oh, my gosh, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor and Jodie Jody Foster as a fixer. Hmm. I was so surprised to see how great she was in that uh, in that role. I uh... – I let me let me tell you actually something very interesting about that role. Um, when we sat down, so uh, Ron Howard, Russell, and I sat down um, right after they bought them a script, and um, you know Ron was originally going to direct Inside Man, and then he got busy doing two, a couple other movies, Cinderella Man and Cinderella Man, Code. I think. <laughs> yes, and and then and then he. That's right, and and then he did the Da Vinci Code uh, right after that. Uh, so, but, but before, while he was still interested in developing it for for himself to direct, he said, you know, what I realize is there's no women in in this. And uh, originally, the 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 roles, all all three of the lead roles were men. And at that meeting, and I get to take credit for this because, uh, um, uh, you know, this is the this it just sort of came to me, and I said, well, why don't we make the Jodie Foster character was originally a man. Why don't we make it a woman? And Good and Ron said, and Ron said, well, that's interesting. He said, let's let's see what that does to the script. So, in in perfect Russell Gewurz, uh in 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 his signature style, he literally changed, I think, two words in the entire thing and made it a woman. Oh. And that is, I think, why that role was so great because you know he wrote that character exactly how that character was meant to be regardless of the fact that it was a woman and and Jody just in fact J- Jody was was on board from the very beginning um her agent Joe Funicello was calling me every day saying Jody wants to do it Jody wants to do it and they 
they didn't commit to her until you know they wanted to know who who the other two characters were going to be before they locked in that role. But um, I mean, we were all thrilled. We knew we were going to do it with Jody. Well, she she did uh, a great job in that in that movie, as did uh, everyone. And I was uh, very impressed with with uh, how how this dealt with diversity and and how you know it, it was very uh, humanistic too. I mean, in terms of highlighting some of our flaws. I mean, no matter who we are, we have flaws. <laughs> I think I think it did a good job of of that. Um, what what are you the most proud of in terms of Inside Man? Uh, you know, I would say uh, I would say the thing I'm most proud of is that the script that I developed with a first time writer is pretty much over ninety something percent what we handed into the studio the day we sold the script, and that I think is a rarity. It certainly is. Well, congratulations on that. And it sounds to me like you really enjoy uh, being a producer. We we haven't had too many producers on Movie Addict Headquarters. We're usually we deal a lot with directors and and the and the uh, and the actors. So this is this is my chance to find out um, what are the most important things that a producer has to do in the movies that that you produce. Sure. Um, do you want me to answer that? Please. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, you know, look, I think a, a producer's role is, uh, it, you know, you could, you could divide it up into many different sections, but I think it boils down to, um, it's, you know, it's creative and it's, and it's financial. Uh, so, you know, some, some producers, uh, prefer one over the other. Uh, I'm one of those people that prefers uh, actually doesn't have a preference. I, I I love using the left and the right side of my brain, uh, and I am a writer. So I think you know the first the first part is um, it's all about great material. And if as a producer your primary uh, your your primary order of business is identifying great material because you can't make a great movie from a bad script. You can make a bad movie from a great script. But you can't go the other way. So, uh, so the first thing is finding great material, and that material can be anything from a newspaper article to a spec screenplay to a book to uh, to a TV show, anything um, play. And then, you know, after that, it's it's developing whatever that material is into a great screenplay, and that may take a while. And then once that's done, it's, you know, attaching actors, finding financing, uh, going to studios, depending on how you want to put your movie together. And and then, you know, also I think the biggest decision a producer make in terms of a hire is, is really the director, because once you hire that director – then uh, you know you're really it's like giving your child up for adoption. I mean, the, the moment you hire a director, um, you're basically giving that the power, the creative power away, and that's why you have to choose your director wisely. And you you really need to um, make sure you're in you're in the hands of someone you hope is who's collaborative and who respects the the process that you've been through as a producer and and bringing the project to, to the place where they're taking it over. And then, um, you know, and, and someone very early on once said to me uh, that, it was, it was Ken Lipper actually years ago, said to me, you know, when you're filming a movie, the power, there's actually a curve that the director has, and it's inverse to the producer. So that as the 
as you're shooting, the power shifts totally to the director and away from the producer. Uh, and, and as production comes to a close, the sh- the, all the power shifts back to the producer and away from the director. Um, I see. And, and, and I think, you know, that's an interesting way to look at it from, um, I mean, you know, from uh, when we say power, it means like who's really controlling the creative process. So, you know, in, in an extreme example, that means that, you know, at the end of a movie, you can remove a director who's not doing their job. You would never really do that during production unless there was, you know, I mean, there was a recent crazy example, but that's a very extreme rare occurrence and you just never want that to happen. So that's sort of, I think, and then, you know, from a financial standpoint, you know, producers responsible for putting the money together, finding uh, distribution and, also, you know, responsible for for the nitty gritty uh, actors deals and things like that. But you know, as a, as a mostly the role that I have, I, you know, you're hiring line producers and more physical producers to handle mm-hmm. the logistics, dealing with the unions, locations, those sorts of things. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people don't realize uh, when they're coming to the business that there's such a dichotomy in the film business between the creative side and the physical production side. Uh, you know, when I'm on set and I'm hanging out with a crew, they have absolutely no idea what I do every day. Um, they have no idea what I went through to get the movie uh, to where where it is or to get to get it to be made. And I think one of the funnier stories I had was when I produced Novocaine. I was just a young kid. I had no idea what I was doing. In fact, um, I think Novocaine was the first movie set I'd ever been on, and I was the boss. And I had to pretend I knew what I was doing. So, uh, you know, there were guys who were twice, more than twice my age, who technically reported, you know, to me. And, um, you know, but I never acted like, uh, I, you know, I, I think it would have been silly for me to pretend I, I knew what I was doing. So uh, I, I went out of my way to explain to people, you know, what, how I got there. And they were amazed by it. And we ended up, you know, they respected me that I, I think, uh, to to a point that I, I really was open with, you know, how, you know, I put the movie together and um, how I was interested in learning what the hell they did. So that was, uh, that <laughs> well, was sort of my Well, my gosh, what a, what a uh, wonderful job <laughs> it is that you that you have, and I can just tell how much you, you enjoy doing it. And I can't believe that our time has is going by so fast and I I didn't even get a chance to uh, to ask you so I better do this before before we have to wrap things up tell us about your um Inventure uh entertainment company and uh, any other projects that you're working well, on now that you'd like us to know about Actually um I think the important thing to know about Inventure is actually that uh I've sort of shifted my business right now um into I have a, a new company it's called Pyro P I R O and the and the website is pyrovision.com but the company's called Pyro and we're actually working with brands uh, with major uh Fortune 500 and various major brands around the globe in creating entertainment that's funded by brands so that it's sort of it serves as advertising but you would never know that it's advertising there's no you know we there's no product integration or placement it's really about think of Miracle on 34th Street where you know Macy's played such a predominant role yeah. in that film but it was very organic and in fact I would argue that having Macy's in that film actually made that movie better uh, because 
because, you know, I think an audience member knew that if they came to New York, it wasn't Acme department store. It was a real place. And I think that added to the magic and made it better. And I think we feel we can do that um, and it, for brands and for me as a film producer, I think it's a great way to find money uh, and be more resourceful with it. And so we've actually developed a feature film for Coca-Cola we're trying to put together right now. That's a Santa movie. Um, we've developed oh. a, a, a fun romantic comedy for Ikea. Uh, and we're trying to, you know, really get these brands to to invest in this and and uh, make strategic entertainment that they can use a lot of their own resources to distribute and market. Well, that's a that's a new way to look at things, and um, uh, I'm I'm really going to be sending you extra special good vibes for success with that. Thank you. And um, I'm so sorry that we that uh, Misha wasn't here because I know that uh, he, I'm going to hear from him, and he'll be um, he'll probably well, believe me, be upset with me that me. I didn't that I that I didn't ask all the questions that he, that he wanted to ask. But I hope maybe we can have you back on the show uh, sometime in the future to talk a little bit more. We didn't even Anytime. touch on Made in Manhattan or Mona Lisa Smile. So would you be willing to come back and visit us again sometime? Anytime, you got it. Anytime. Oh. Oh, great. Well, I'll really look forward uh, to that. And I wanted to take some time now also to thank the people uh, who signed up for the chat and uh, to thank uh, uh, Nikki Starr for all her help today. And also a big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for featuring this episode as one of today's Staff picks, we really, really do appreciate it. And I uh, definitely want to make sure that the people at Blog Talk Radio know there are thousands of shows, Daniel, that uh, are uh, presented on Blog Talk Radio every day. And uh, uh, the staff choose about from five to ten episodes to feature. And I think they were very wise to choose uh, today's episode because you've been such a terrific guest and it was such a treat uh, to talk with you. Um, I hope that everyone enjoyed the show as much as I did, and I hope that you will all come back next time when our guests will be filmmakers Walter Dominguez and Shelley Morrison, who will discuss their remarkable documentary, Weaving the Past. Now, uh, Walter serves as the director and writer of this documentary, and Shelley Morrison is his wife. She's also an actress who's best known for her work as the maid, I believe, on uh, TV's Will and Grace. It's going to be a very interesting show, and I hope everyone will come back and uh, listen to Walter and uh, Shelley. You definitely will not be disappointed. In the meantime, Don't you forget to check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L, realtalkreviews.com. And remember that Inside Man, Righteous Kill, and Novocaine are available on DVD for your listening pleasure. So, listeners, if you haven't seen... These th- any of these three films, make sure that you you uh, you order order them because you won't be disappointed in any of these films. They're uh, they're important films, and uh, I want to congratulate again Daniel Rosenberg for his work as a producer on these films. Well, that's all for now, Thank folks. You. 
Oh, and thank you so much, uh, Daniel. We'll hope to be talking with you again soon. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. That's all for now, folks. So to take us out, here's Brian Ferry with a musical number from Casablanca uh, that reminds us how great movies can be as time goes by. Remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers move They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man, and man must have his name that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time. Oh